there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one definitive page of Talmud each day. Today, as we hit Gitin 82 and 83, we want to do something a little bit different. If you've been with us from the very beginning, or even if you've just joined us just the other day, you know that studying the Talmud is a great pleasure and an opportunity to think about so many questions that continue to haunt us and that are so relevant today and on which the rabbis in their infinite wisdom had already many illuminating things to say back in their day. But easy studying the Talmud ain't. And sometimes it helps to take a step or two back, take a breather and get a refresher in basic terms, ideas and concepts so that we could all better understand the rabbis and get more from our journey into the Talmud. This show's producer, Daron Ruskay, keeps reminding me of that. So today, I'm going to hand the episode over to him as he chats with our one and only friend and teacher, Rabbi David Bashevkin, and revisits a few of the basics. Have a listen. Welcome back to our second Take One Explainer podcast. I'm Daron Ruskay, and as Leo said, he has handed the microphones over to me and David. As a Jewish day school dropout, I often find myself confused by some of the basic ideas. And while I can always try to get answers by Googling the answer, I'm lucky enough that when I have real questions, I can go to one of my favorite rabbis and teachers, David Beshevkin. Welcome. What an absolute joy to be here, Daron. Thank you so much for having me. Now, while I have a number of questions that I've been thinking about as we've been going through this tractate, both about this tractate specifically and the act of studying Talmud more generally, I also reached out to our Facebook group for questions from our listeners. You can join us there by searching for Take One on Facebook. We got some great questions. I thought I would start this episode by inviting you to give some answers to a few of their questions. Our first question is one that just came in. And it comes from a listener named Josh. He says, Clearly the Talmud was written down in a very different era of sociological understanding, whether it's in regards to women, slavery, sexuality, and so on. How much can we say that it's just unfortunate, and how much do we have to wrestle with it today? What would our favorite rabbis say about this question? So first and foremost, let me say I love this idea of populating questions about the Talmud and kind of these essential questions that we all grapple with from our Facebook group, from social. Uh, The Take One community is something that I really treasure. So I really love this idea, and it's really a privilege to participate in it. This is a foundational question in understanding how we understand the world of the Talmud. And there's no question that... In my opinion, there are things that will kind of be offensive or or really seem out of step with contemporary times when you read the Talmud, particularly as it relates to marriage, divorce, sexuality, a lot of things that, that we said over there. And I think there are really two principles that we need to understand. Number one, yes, I think we should be wrestling with these concepts. That is the project of the Talmud itself. The Talmud does not have a clear end date where it just ends and then 
Okay, now we just have to listen exactly to what the Talmud is. The project of the Talmud continues into contemporary times, and by wrestling with these concepts is how we kind of construct and build meaning into our contemporary lives. There's something else that I think we need to keep in mind, is that even when we find something that may be offensive or really out of step with contemporary times, you have to understand that there are concepts that transcend the realia of the Talmud. The Talmud very oftentimes deals with realia or, you know, what was happening in that contemporary time. Slavery is an excellent example of this. You know, th this was a time where people kept slaves. It's obviously something that we find morally repugnant. But there are concepts that emerge from the Jewish and Talmudic grappling with slavery that transcend the actual practices that they were talking about. There are concepts in Jewish law that emerge from this. There are principles about how to live and act and have a refined Jewish life that emerge from this. So really my answer is twofold. Number one, Yes, continue to grapple with it. That is the project of the Talmud. When we take concepts and see how does this fit into our lives, how does this relate to my life, even asking that question is a holy question. And number two, we have to understand that even if the realia of the Talmud are no longer relevant or even sometimes offensive, there are conceptual ideas that emerge from that realia that are still extraordinarily relevant even nowadays. Hmm. It's just so hard when it kind of falls so differently and separately from my kind of moral take of life and and to, you know, it's so, so originalist in some ways that I find that kind of like, I, I hear what you're saying and I respect it. I find it difficult, you know, just in the way I, the ways that I think about a lot of issues. Well, I think the Jewish people have an incredible mechanism to ensure that even things that are out of step with our moral intuitions, which I don't know that we should always be relying upon, you know, but even things that are out of step with our moral intuitions, we have a mechanism. We don't build our lives word for word directly based on the Talmud. The mechanism is through the refinement of the tradition through the generations. And it is that mechanism, which is the Jewish people themselves are the ultimate arbiter of what remains in practice and what remains relevant. And when you rely on that collective body, the interpretive community of the Jewish people, so long as we're always grappling, we're always in dialogue with tradition, I think that you will never find a Jewish community that en masse is violating basic moral principles because our collective community is the ultimate interpreter and arbiter of the practice of Yiddishkeit. Got it. Yeah, that, I get it. That makes sense. Thank you. All right. Next, K. Miranda Gilbert asked, I know zip about Talmud other than what I've picked up listening to Take One, which is a lot. I'd love some context for the years over which these various commentaries were written. When someone says, Rabbi X said that, Rabbi Y said, is the person referring to rabbis who were writing years earlier, centuries earlier? So I think what she's trying to understand is, first, when were these rabbis around? And second, how can these rabbis who lived in different times be in conversation? What an awesome question. Kay Gilbert, Kay Miranda Gilbert, did I get that name That's correct? Right. That, that, that is an absolutely fantastic uh, question. It has uh, vexed a lot of scholars. 
Uh, let's talk about the dating for a second. Generally, we date the Mishnah, which is the core texts of Jewish law upon which the Talmud is built. We date the redaction of the Mishnah around uh, the year 200. Now, the Talmud took place over many, many, many centuries. It begins a project that starts really even with the destruction of the temple, even earlier, these oral traditions that rabbis are grappling with the law, how to apply it nowadays. There are laws that even address when the temple was standing. But the project of the Talmud takes place over many, many centuries and basically ends I'm going to give a very broad estimate, but this is debated around scholars. It, it ends in the 9th century, in like the 800s. Some might even date it later. There are centuries in Jewish history where we do not have any text, or basically no text that were authored by individual rabbis. Almost 500 years, I would say, from the time of the redaction of the Mishnah, all the way to, to really the, the 900s up into the, the year 1000 where you see an explosion of individual rabbis writing commentaries. In those centuries, all of the dialogue, all of the conversation is collected in these texts called the Talmud, which was only put to print and codified, canonized much much, much later, again, in the ninth century. These are conversations that took place over centuries, and to be a Jewish leader and a Jewish educator during this time meant to participate in this collective conversation that took place over centuries. And again, different rabbis within the Talmud live in different centuries. To go through each one would be extraordinarily uh, cumbersome, but there are fantastic books that date, you know, which centuries did each group of rabbis in fact live. A lot of them are, are living in the 4th century in Iran, which is where the Babylonian community was was situated in the, in the 300s. But there we have rabbis even much later, and they refine these conversations over centuries. In terms of the question of direct attribution when a rabbi says i heard it's such a brilliant question i heard in the name of rabbi yehuda that we said as follows or or in in the original aramaic would say amar rev yehuda amar uh rebbe akiva you'll have two rabbis right next to each other and one rabbi is saying i i just said it in the uh, hebrew one rabbi says in the name of the other rabbi there's a very important distinction in how these direct attributions work. Sometimes the Talmud says, Omar, which is the Hebrew word for said, this rabbi said, then this rabbi said. That is a direct attribution that usually shows you the chain of a student to his teacher, and they were in direct contact with each other. This all changes in the 4th century with the figures Abaya and Rava. Abaya and Rava are some of the most common sages of the Talmud. They're the most ubiquitous, I think, by a wide margin of any rabbis in the Talmud. And they were the first to gather all of the traditions from all the rabbis. Until then, I only quoted what I heard in the traditions from my specific teacher. The first movement to kind of gather even teachers you've never interacted with, that is in the generation of Abaya and Rava. And you will notice that the attribution actually changes in the generation of Abaya and Rava. Instead of saying, Rabbi X said, Rabbi X said, you just have a lot of said, and this Rabbi said, and this Rabbi said, that's a direct attribution. After Abaya and Rava, the attributions are actually less direct. 
And it would say, this rabbi said, in the name of, mishmei, that's the Aramaic for it, in the name of. It's not a direct attribution, and that's because in the generation of Abayi Varava, all of the teachings of all of the previous generations were collected and discussed within the halls of the yeshiva. So you have to you have to really be able to parse out the, the the words that come before the name to know whether it's him or the writings of. Exactly. Generally, we say if it's just this rabbi said, this rabbi said, this rabbi said, that's direct attribution. They're probably students quoting their teachers going all the way back. Everything changes in the generation of Abayi Varava where people are interacting with traditions that they may have never even heard directly. It's wonderful. Thank you. The next question comes from Ellen Kahan Zager. She asks, how can we tell which rabbi and his school reflects which approach to a machloket, a disagreement, without being Torah scholars ourselves? For example, Rav will tend to see things this way, Mayor that way. That's an awesome question. It's... We have awesome listeners. I mean, listeners. it's very hard. We have awesome questions. We, we, we do have the best listeners, and we do have the best community. It really is so inspiring to me. And this feels, you know, me and you talking and responding to questions of people that I've, I've never met directly feels very Talmudic, <laughs> so it's really inspiring to me. We're continuing the project of the Talmud here in, in 2023. But I think it's very hard to know definitively unless we have – sometimes there, there are two ways to figure it out. And and, and both of them involve Talmud study. You can't just like, you know, make it up. But there are two ways to figure it out. Sometimes the Talmud would tell you a principle. They will tell you an actual principle that uh, this rabbi, whenever he says X, uh, you should assume they're being very stringent or they're being very lenient or they're only saying it for their community. Sometimes the Talmud will give you the principle. But there's another way that I think is more interesting and requires a little bit more thought, but I think it's about constructing the personality of each of the rabbis of the Talmud. The, the rabbi who I like to quote, he's not a Talmudic rabbi, but I quote him all the time, is Reb Tzadok HaKohen Melublin. Reb Tzadok was a Hasidic thinker who lived from 1823 to 1900, and he has very um, both modern and traditional ideas that are woven together. And he says something really remarkable. He says that in Aramaic, when we quote something in the name of a rabbi, the Aramaic word we use is aliba, according to this person. Aliba demanda amar, according to this opinion. And he says the word aliba in Aramaic derives from the word, and maybe some of our listeners could even hear it, aliba comes from the lave, from the heart. Every sage in the Talmud had their own heart, their own experiences that bear upon the way they formed and fashioned Jewish law and Jewish ideas. And the second way I think is even more interesting, it's finding biographic information to understand who are these people. Who was Hillel? Who was Shammai? Who was Abaya? Abaya was an orphan. Did that calculate, did that play a role in Abaya's, the way that he fashioned and thought of ideas? Every 
Amora, which were which is the Aramaic word for Talmudic sages, has their own Aliba Demanda Amar. They each have their own heart, their own existential narrative that bears upon the way they look at the world. And I think the best way to figure that out is by immersing yourself into the Talmudic stories and noticing what are the biographical information, the stories and ideas that fashioned each of these great sages. That's a lot of work. Can you give me like a cheat sheet? Is there is there some document where I could just find it nice and easy? Um, there are there are some great books. I think Rabbi Lau, Rabbi Benny Lau, wrote a book called The Sages of the Talmud, which you could read, and he goes through a lot of their life and gives clear examples. I think that's uh, I may have misquoted, but I think that's that's the right book. It's called The Sages. You could find it. it was published by Corin, but I think the best way to do it is to really immerse yourself into this world and really pay attention to who's being quoted, what are they being quoted for, and most importantly, what were the experiences that fashioned who they are. I mean, the life of Rebbe Akiva in and of itself could be its own novel, its own biography, and there have been biographies written. He witnessed the destruction of the temple. He grew up not in a a religious or traditional community. He hated rabbis. And once you understand the personality of Rebbe Akiva, you begin to understand why he's so central in the Talmudic project. In your last question, you mentioned two of my favorite rabbis growing up. Whenever I was learning, it was Hillel and Shammai, and we always followed Hillel. <laughs> that's, that's what I always thought. It Almost all questions ended up that the community, the Jewish community, followed the decision of Hillel. Which brings us to the next question that Vera Singer sent us. How do we know what an actual decision is? I think that it's a great question. I mean, when we read the debate, but it's not always clear whose decision, whose authority we stand by. How do we figure that out? That is a major, major question and cannot be answered uh, on one foot. There are principles, what are known as the klale hapsak, the general principles of rulings of how we figure out what we should actually do in our time. Uh, I want to first make a disclaimer. The way we decide Jewish law is not by opening up the Talmud and uh, just saying, oh, it's probably like this person. That's how I'm going to decide. There are, as I mentioned earlier, our tradition has been filtered through the generations, through intergenerational dialogue. And you really need to tap into that intergenerational dialogue to understand how we apply Jewish law into contemporary times. But there are ways and little winks to understanding how we decide. You could actually find the klale hapsak, the the general rules of kind of how we apply the law in the back. It's I, I don't know if it's been translated. It's in the back of tractate brachos. Uh, which is the first tractate, and it has uh, all the rules of how we decide things. There are a lot of rules that that we know because the Talmud says them. When there is a dispute between Rav and Shmuel, there are basic principles for who we decide accordingly. That's number one. Number one is look at the principles. Number two, there's a second thing. Sometimes inside of the Talmud itself, they'll have the words vehilchasa, and the law accords with 
And then it will say, which rabbi does the law accord with? Generally, I believe these were added in in the times of the Geonim, in the early times of the Rishonim, that's around uh, in the 11th century. These were added in to kind of really explain who we decide like. And sometimes the Talmud tells you, you see the words right there, this is who we decide like. But really, the, the third way is the most important way, and that is to immerse yourself not just in the Talmud, but in the intergenerational dialogue that emerged following the Talmud. And the three most important texts to understanding that intergenerational dialogue of how we apply Jewish law is, number one, the RIF, that's an acronym for Rev Al-Fasi, that's in the back of traditional Talmuds. He went through every single passage in Talmud, and he tells you who we decide accordingly. Uh, that's number one. Number two, the second person who's really, really important in this, and it's probably the one our listeners are most familiar with, is Maimonides. Maimonides' Mishnah Torah which is uh, kind of his code that he wrote, covers the entire Talmud, actually translated it into very understandable and accessible Hebrew, and he goes through the entire Talmud and tells you how we decide. Now, the Rambam was very mischievous because he, he left out one thing. He didn't tell any of his readers where in the Talmud he got his rulings from. So if you open up a traditional set of Maimonides of the Rambam, you'll see all these commentaries surrounding him trying to figure out where did you get this idea? Where did it come from? Uh, so that's, that's Maimonides. The last person is actually also um, really important and is also known, like so many Talmudic commentaries are known by their acronym. This person is known as the Rush, which is Rev Usher ben Yechiel, He's known by the acronym almost. Everybody calls him the Rush, uh, like to rush. You know, every every oh, uh, high school rebbe. No, every high school rebbe that I had would always say, "You got to rush to the rush. You got to move quickly." Rush to the rush. So the rush is a very important commentary. Uh, he's later. The Maimonides is 11th century. The Rif is a little bit before the uh, Maimonides, also 11th century. The rush is 14th century, 13th, 14th century. Why is he important? Because the Rif and the Ramba, Maimonides, both came from the lands of Sfard. They came from lands where they had, uh, the Rambam was in Egypt a lot of the time. They came from lands where they had a Sephardic tradition. Why the rush is so important is because he brought in the tradition of Ashkenaz from European countries and all of the traditions that emerge from that intergenerational dialogue. Now, these three opinions don't always agree. The Rif, the Rambam, and the Rush don't always agree. So how do you know who to follow? So that relates to really the unfolding of Jewish law into contemporary times. The Rush's son wrote a work called The Tour, and The Tour basically takes the opinion of the Rambam, the Rif, and the Rush, and sorts out. He usually goes like the majority of those three, but that's this a... It's starting to sound a little bit like who's on first. The rush went yeah, to the so, rift and the rush <laughs> on the tour. And da, 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 ba, ba, ba. It, 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 it does sound a little bit like who's on fourth, and it's tough to keep track of, and it's tough to answer very succinctly. This is a massive question of how Jewish law unfolded following the Talmud, and I hope this gives a little bit of an accessible window for how that intergenerational dialogue that continues to this day uh, has unfolded through the generations. 
Now, I have some questions of my own, but first I want to thank our dedicated Facebook group for these amazing questions, and I hope that you'll continue to post them, as I hope that Rabbi Bashevkin will continue to come back for more of these explainers with me. But here are some of my questions. As I've been reading through Masechet Gittin, which is all about divorce, I reflected on a previous tractate, Yevamot, which is all about leveret marriage. Now, leveret marriage is the idea that a woman must marry the brother of her spouse if he dies before having a child. But in this tractate, we learn about divorce, which does not seem to require a child being born first. Could a woman who was forced into leveret marriage then just get a get to end that marriage? So I first want to take a little bit of issue in the way you phrased the question. Women are not forced into a Leverite marriage. We have a mechanism where a formerly women can refuse the Leverite marriage, which is called Chalitza. Chalitza is that funky ceremony with the shoe, uh, and that's also discussed in Tractate Yavamos. But once she enters the actual Leverite marriage, she can use a regular divorce to then dissolve that marriage. Mm -hmm. When it comes to our conversation, which is in Tractate Gittin, children do not play a, a real factor in the ability uh, to dissolve the marriage. Really, whether or not the marriage has children, doesn't have children, if the couple wants to dissolve the marriage, they use the document that our tractate is named after called a get, which is back to our who's on first, because all of these Hebrew words are also English verbs. So I hope we haven't lost anyone between the rush, the riff, the the get. It's tough to keep track of, but yes. So one of the things that I love about listening to you and Liel is that in the final episode of each tractate, you recite the Hadran Allah. Can you explain a little bit about that bracha? The Hadran is, I wouldn't call it a bracha, it's a prayer that we say, and I, I genuinely think it is the most moving prayer, perhaps, uh, in the entire corpus of, uh, of Jewish blessings and prayers. Because in Judaism, we do something that is so moving, which is we say goodbye to our holy books, and we make a promise that we will return to them. The Hadron prayer has a, a fascinating history of its own. We could talk about it for hours, though we won't. It dates to around the 11th century, and the words Hadron Allah for Hadrach Alon is a question, those are Aramaic terms, it is a question of how to translate them. And it is a beautiful two-sided debate of how to translate those words. The word hadar can mean two things, and that comes from the root word that begins the prayer, hadron, where we make this promise that we will return to you, and then we also ask that the words of Torah return to us. But the word hadar can actually mean one of two things. It can mean to return, but hadar could also mean to beautify and to glorify. So really the prayer has two meanings, and I think they're both equally true. One is a promise that we will return to the words of Torah, and also a promise that the words of Torah should return to us, which I think is so beautiful that we, not only do we need to return to it, we ask that the Torah find find me, you know where to find me. It's not only in our hands, we ask the Torah to almost find us, but there is a second meaning that I think is also really beautiful, and that is that Hadar can mean to beautify, to glorify, and in that reading, the prayer 
here is actually saying, we're asking that words of Torah have made us beautiful, and we also say that we have made the Torah beautiful. And it is part of this beautiful dialogue and reciprocal relationship between the Jewish people and Torah. Amazing. I always love it. And I think I think that's exactly a beautiful thing. But that brings up the question that I actually found on today's Dapim on page 82 and 83. And it's also previously on page 77, which is in the middle of the page. There is a Hajan Allah prayer. And it's not the end of a chapter. It's a, it's not even the end of a page. And I just was confused by seeing that in the middle there. I actually think that you may be mistaken. I believe it is in the middle of a chapter. We have a hadron that we put at the end of every chapter in the Talmud. Uh, you may not have been able to notice it. Sometimes it's like very abrupt and on the top of the page, the printer may not have attributed the new chapter top of the page. But we have a hadron at the end of every tractate and at the end of every chapter. And part of the reason why is because really every chapter has its own theme in the Talmud. If you pay very close attention, uh, there are some who have even suggested that the whole way that the Talmud was organized was based on the length of chapters. If you look at why the Talmud is in the order it is, usually it goes from the longest, the most amount of chapters to the least amount of chapters. And people, especially in traditional yeshiva, sometimes just study one chapter for an entire year. So at the end of every chapter, they also included a hadron. So a chapter could change within a page. Yes, the chapter very often changes within a page. Ah, well, you know, I read when I read my literature, a new chapter usually have a white page. You get to exactly, the next page, you exactly. Know? Ah, they try good. to take advantage of every all the white space in the Talmud. There's all the white. Yeah, there's space. a fascinating history to the printed Talmud page, but essentially, uh, yes, a chapter. It does not start on a new page like the like Harry Potter or a book or or, or John Grisham. <laughs> say, right. uh, they they get right on. They make sure they don't lose your attention and they keep on going all right well david whenever i get to sit with you i come out smarter i feel more prepared to dive into talmud study and i know that our listeners appreciate your agreeing to answer some of these basic questions i hope you'll join us again soon for another explainer episode and i thank you for joining me today Thank you, and most of all, thank you so much to the Take One community. Uh, it's really the most moving community that I've ever been a part of, and it is my absolute privilege and pleasure to be a part of it. So thank you so much for having me. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, then you're going to enjoy our brand new Take One newsletter even more. Each week, you'll get an extra shot of Talmudic wisdom straight to your inbox. And for those who sign up before Tractate Gittin ends, we'll be raffling off some Take One swag. So make sure to subscribe at tabletm.ag slash Take One newsletter. As always, please go rate and review Take One on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. And you could get your Take One t-shirts, mugs, and other amazing form of swag at tabletstudios.com. 
Each week, we will be releasing new episodes Monday through Friday, covering the entire weekly portion of Daf Yomi. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruske, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Courtney Hazelt, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. You could find us on Twitter at takeone.dafyomi or join our Facebook group by searching for Take One Podcast. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic.